Welcome back to Native Lights, where, where indigenous, indigenous voices, voices shine. shine. <laughs> I'm your host, Leah Lam. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo. So this is, unbelievably, the final episode of our first season. This show is near and dear to me, near and dear to us. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a self-reflection slash critical thinking. Now, today we're hearing from amazing Native individuals who are fighting to tell their story in a mainstream media landscape where Native voices are seemingly misunderstood or ignored. And we definitely have some strong feelings about that subject. Seemingly? <laughs> really? <laughs> Maybe I should I have would struck say, that from the script. No, I would say uh, are yeah. misunderstood and ignored. And, you know, that's that's my belief. No, but when when you hear from the community, it's definitely something that is an overwhelming feeling. Or overwhelming fact. Yes, overwhelming <laughs> fact. This invisibility, basically. Right, exactly. Untold stories. That's right. Yeah, and the stories the, that are out there from Native voices are so rich, as we know from this show that we are working on. Mm-hmm. How many voices are out there? Each Indigenous person, each person has many stories to share. Yeah, and you don't want to get caught in this this, this cycle of just going to the, the token community uh, you know, voice. There's a bunch of people who have thoughts on all these different issues that are affecting Native communities. Absolutely. And, you know, the, those voices, those, those big voices that we hear about are incredibly important and have paved the way, you know, have, you know, talked at length about, you know, their subject, but you're right, there, there's definitely room for inviting more people to the table. Today we're going to be hearing from a couple notable Native leaders, Dakota historian and educator Dr. Kate Bean, as well as uh, activist turned journalist turned politician Wab Canoe, who is now the leader of the New Democratic Party in Manitoba, Canada. All right, and we're also going to a gathering in uh, Bemidji, Minnesota, where the Indigenous Environmental Network's Simone Senegals organized a media workshop for Native women. And it was an event called We Speak for Ourselves in Ojibwe Moen that's Giga Gi Gidota Ma Dismin. Our dad better not hear me say <laughs> that. He'll, he'll pick apart my <laughs> pronunciation, but that's okay. Minnesota Native News producer, Melissa Townsend, is here today with us. Hello. Hi, Melissa. Hello. <laughs> and she was part of organizing the event. So, Melissa, can you tell us a bit more about the event? Sure. So it all started with Simone Senegals, like you said. She's an organizer with the Indigenous Environmental Network based in Bemidji. She's a terrific spokesperson for that organization and lots of other things she does in the community. And she wants to hear more Native voices in media, like we all do. That's so cool, Melissa. She sounds really awesome. Yeah, I've met her uh, a number of times now over the years. And the thing that's remarkable about her to me is that She's always kind of speaking from her heart, and she stands firmly in who she is. She specifically wants Native women to feel like they can speak up and represent their points of view on issues they care about. Love it. Yeah. Here's how she started the evening out talking to the group. I think it's really important that there are lots of voices in our community who reporters know to go to. Because I think now there are like one or two people that everyone's, they're like the go-to person. They're like, ask that same damn person every time, right? And I'm, and that's cool. Like, I'm glad to hear that person. That person might be smart. But I don't want to hear from them all the time. I want to hear from a lot of people in my community. Yep, I think Simone is right on target there. Um, to get a more well-rounded view of a community, you, you definitely just don't talk to one person because every everybody's different. Everybody has a, their own perspective. Like nobody's like the spokesperson, right? Yeah. yeah. So I've talked to Simone a number of times over the years for different stories on Minnesota Native News. And um, she told me one time that she just really wanted to facilitate a media training for Native women around Bemidji. And so we said, hey, let's go for it. And Leah, you and I were both there. Yeah, it was pretty fun, and oh my gosh, the room was full. Yeah, yeah, it was a really good feeling in that space. And we had a conversation that at some points got really challenging, I thought. And you put it into a story for us to play today. Mm -hmm. Melissa, if you don't mind, I might interrupt your story (laughs) from time to time just to 
you know, kind of pipe in. I love it. That's okay with you. Okay. Love it. Love it. All right. Yeah, let's hear it. And uh, to recap for the listeners, this is a media workshop for Native women in Bemidji that was recorded last November. Our producer, Melissa Townsend, was part of the workshop, and this is the story from that event. There are about 20 to 25 people in the room, mostly Native and mostly women. We're sitting in folding chairs in a circle in this giant, very echoey room. It's snowy and cold outside, but it's kind of cozy in this circle inside this big room. The heater blasts on every now and then, and there's a little baby hanging out, who I'm sure you'll hear soon. I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with the fact that we're underrepresented in the media. Can anyone name a TV show or a movie with a leading Native woman role, played by a real Native? Nope. At the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, there are only two Native women members, making the representation of Native women 0.0026%. So we are underrepresented both in front and behind the camera, both in front and behind the microphone. When we're invisible, it's easier for people to think that we don't matter. It's easier for crimes to be committed against us without any consequences for the criminals who perpetrate this violence upon us. Simone says the women in the room can start to change this. And we have a lot of responsibility to speak up because my grandma and my great-grandma and all of those before them, they worked really hard for our people, and now it's our turn. And so we have to be brave, stand up, and speak our truth. So this is where I take the mic, and I start by talking about how the way reporters write stories leaves Native people, and specifically Native women, out of the picture. So um, let's compare some stories here from different outlets. Uh, There was this, a couple years ago, the Duluth Indigenous Commission released a report um, on the Indigenous history of the Duluth region. So what do you want to know from that report, and who do you want to hear from in that report? What indigenous people are they talking to, or who, which, who are they? And are the indigenous people saying something back, or are they giving their point and their opinion? So the Duluth News Tribune did a story about this report being released, okay? And these are the first two paragraphs of it. Uh, study reveals little-known history of Native Americans around Duluth. Duluth City Hall and the St. Louis County Courthouse stand on land given to Ojibwe leader Chief Buffalo in 1854 treaty. What's that? Start out wrong. Say more about that, Renee. Well, how can you give land to indigenous peoples? That's not possible. So right from the very beginning, it's wrong. Thank you. Historian Bruce White said that's a part of the city's history more residents should be aware of. Bruce White is a wonderful, wonderful man. He looks like he's a great ally to Native communities, and he is white. So I'm not going to read the second paragraph, but suffice to say, he is the only person quoted in this entire article. He doesn't sit on the Duluth Indigenous Commission. He's not an indigenous person. So at Minnesota Native News, I'm not going to toot our own horn, but we did a story about this report, and I'm just going to play it for you for a second, okay? The Duluth Indigenous Commission is made up of 11 people from the city who are appointed by the mayor. Back in 2012, the group began to talk about changes they wanted to see in the city. We wanted to have our stories from our ancestors be known in this area. Babette Sandman is enrolled in the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, and she sits on the Duluth Indigenous Commission. If you come to Duluth, you know, you don't see anything that says we ever existed. She says, take the city's Leif Erikson Park, for example. In the park, there's a statue of the Viking explorer with a plaque that says he discovered the New World. Erikson stands with one hand shielding his eyes from the sun and the other pointing out over the water. Which I think Leif Erikson should be out in the water pointing towards the land because then he'd be saying, who are all those people there? Well, that would be us, (laughs) you know? And we'd have our hands up over our eyes, shading our eyes from the sun too, looking out, who in the heck is that out there? So it's a different kind of story from the beginning. And I love that she's so funny. She's so funny, right? And I keep picturing the statue in the water going, wait, who are all those people who are already there? <laughs> like, um, you want to hear the rest of it? Okay. 
I went on to play the whole story, but I'm going to cut to the end here. We pick up with a woman named Christina Wood, who lives in Duluth. The Native community knows about a lot of this stuff, but until a study comes out and it's written professionally, non-Natives aren't going to believe you or think about it. Christina Wood is Ojibwe, and she's lived in Duluth for seven years. She's a diversity consultant for organizations around the state. Native people linked to the area known as Duluth come from a long line of entrepreneurial, inventive business people. They've been raising their families, taking care of the area for generations. And I don't know that we oftentimes remember that. In her heart, Christina Wood hopes the report is a reality check for people who believe negative stereotypes about Native Americans. And according to Bruce White... So it's a different story, and there are Native people in that story. And I think they not only talk about the report, but they talk about kind of the context of the report and what they have to deal with on a day-in and day-out basis and what they're trying to do about that. I mean, there's agency there. Any other observations about what you heard? I had, so, I had uh, some concerns about these phrases. Um, the contribution of Native people. You know, to what? What bothers me about your part of the reporting is the normalization of whiteness and how our people have to be referred to that. To even say that, uh, oh, we, ha we contributed to the growth of America or something like that is to still operate from a colonized perspective. You, you get what I'm saying? I totally get what you're saying. I did get what she was saying that Native people should not be judged based on their contributions to a society that's done its best to eliminate and marginalize tribal communities. And as a reporter talking with Christina Wood, should I have cut that quote out of the story? Should I have questioned her about it? That's stuff I have to figure out. It's part of my growth as a non-Native person working on these stories, too, I think, to evolve my thinking around that. So thank you, yes. Um, and it starts with, Native people speaking up, right? And speaking for themselves, I think, around this and educating people like me. And this comment that it's Native women's responsibility to tell their story, it hits a nerve. Yeah, and I don't like to explain myself constantly. You know? That just gets sickening after a bit. If you don't know, then, you know. We want to tell our story and we feel we have to tell our own story. But... Outside of ourselves, um, a lot of people don't, just don't understand, so it's hard to talk to people who don't understand who we are and, or even remember that we're still here. Like, all that information is out there for people to educate themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't... A lot of that information is out there. And I think that it is also not culturally normal for people to educate themselves a lot of the time. Why should I tell this if I don't think they actually care? Heads are nodding in agreement. Folks in the room feel really strongly about this. There's some stuff that I want to say, and then um, when I do say it to them, it gets turned around, and, they d and it's, not ex it's not what I said. And, or if I say it, they make it look like I said it means something different, when that isn't what, exactly what I meant. So I just get away from the reporters. I figure, well, you know, I don't want to talk to you. You're not going to report it the way that I see it or the way that I said it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Leah here, I'm going to jump in and echo what the women are saying. And also kind of point out the odd line we have to walk sometimes. So, no, I don't want to have to explain myself all the time. There needs to be this general understanding, knowledge of Indian country, but also the reporters and the media, they don't know our particular stories, right? Like our perspectives and the variations. So it's almost like, yes, there is this knowledge that reporters should know or educate themselves on, but also that they won't know that they need to ask. So having Native people speaking up and speaking for themselves, I do think that's, you know, that's really valid because we can't make assumptions about their stories, our stories. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. You know, I feel like at this moment in the evening, people are like, what? Like, And it's an airing of grievances of all the feelings they've had about trying to explain the story and having to double back and no, that's not what I meant. And no, that's not what I meant. You know, so like this just felt like a cathartic moment to me. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I think there's a lot of fear there. Just like, I don't know you. Why, why should I talk to you? I don't know. There was just a lot in that moment I totally see what you're saying yeah th- yeah definitely a lot you know not ha- not wanting to explain yourself but also at the same time being visible I guess yeah yeah You've got a lot in, in common with Simone because, you know, she listens to all of these concerns that these women bring up, but she's like, yeah, you're going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And we'll hear more from her in a sec. Yeah, let's keep it going. Back to the event. It's clear there are many reasons these folks don't want to go through the trouble to talk to the media. There are so many stories where reporters get things wrong, make bad assumptions, head in the wrong direction. And I kind of start to think, what am I doing here? Who am I to ask them to take this on? But then Simone speaks up, and she's not letting anybody off the hook. The reporter said to me recently, and she wasn't saying it in an adversarial way, but it was this idea of, like, why should people care about Native stories? You know, you're only 2% of the population. Um, And she was anticipating what some people might ask her. And I really had to think about that question and, like, why do we choose to engage in these systems. And so I think like sometimes when I engage with media, I'm talking to my folks. When you're hearing the story, I want you to hear me amidst all the other stuff. I at least want to hear, I want you to hear something good about us or our point of view. And so there are times where when I'm navigating media, I have to think like I'm not just there so I can educate the mainstream. I'm there so that my sisters who are listening, they hear my voice too. People are leaning forward in their chairs. And again, heads are nodding in agreement. You want to say something? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just over here nodding too. Like, "Mm mm-hmm. I mean, indigenous populations, other populations are forgotten about so much. Like, why can't we take a moment to forget about the mainstream population or forget about non-native populations or, you know, white populations, let's just say, and speak to ourselves? I mean, white people do that all the time. So why can't we do that too? Yeah. And a lot of women start to speak up about that point right there. In all honesty, these are gifts that were passed to us to pass to the next generation, because in all honesty, it's not about us anymore. It's about what we have to offer and give to the next generation. So we'll have more of an understanding with each other for these stories to be factual for the next generation. There's a direct correlation between the fact that our voices are not heard in the media and that we are ignored, we are invisible. And so our disappearances, our murders go uninvestigated because people don't hear us, we're not there. And, and that's, that's their fault, yes, but I'm going to do something about it. I'm not going to wait for them to do something about it. Simone is powerful and convincing. And I realize that what I'm here to do is offer a picture of how these folks can approach reporters to be seen and to be heard. Each of you gets to decide your ground rules for who you talk to, what you say, and how you'll do it. I mean, you get to decide. So if you want to be more a part of media by and for Native people, there are there are those outlets, and you can probably do a lot less explaining and deal with a lot less ignorance. But if you want to try and get into some of these more mainstream, you know, predominantly white places, you still get to set the tone, and that's next coming up around you making those decisions, not somebody else. Yeah. We talked about tagging a story or a specific reporter in social media to let them know if you like the story or not if you think it hit the mark or not. If you want to criticize a piece of news, tag that news agency, tag that reporter. Uh, you know, look online, find the editor, tag the editor. They pay attention. They, they pay attention. We talked about getting together with a reporter on background, off the record, just to talk with them about what they're missing. I just want to give an example of that happening um, with me at the Pioneer. It was a specific reporter who had been doing some kind of nasty stories about um, pipeline stuff. 
and um, she called me and she was like, oh, I'm on deadline and I need this story. And would you like to comment? And I actually told her, no. I've been reading what you guys have been writing and I don't think you're going to accurately reflect what I say based on the tone of the stories that you've been using. And I didn't do that story with her or the next one. And she would call and leave messages and I would just ignore her. And then finally, we ended up visiting a lot. She stepped up. Yeah. I could always count on her to cover my stuff. Like Simone, if you want to be in front of the TV or in front of the mic, you have to at some point go on the record. On the record means you're being recorded, they can quote you. So let's talk about going on the record. I ran for school board this last election. I didn't get in, but I had to sit down with reporters and he, him and I were, ta we were talking. And at one point I was like, can I just look at what you're writing? Because I, I want to see. And eventually, I mean, he, he did. It was kind of like, built, you build kind of a relationship. He was fun, and I was, I was just kind of like talking, and we, we got, I, I'd have to say, okay, so this is off the record, but this reminds me of a scene in Wakanda. Because I, I said, my son is totally into superheroes, and, and we were, we would go back and forth and just kind of joke around about superhero things. And then he was like, so is this on the record? Can I totally put this in? I was like, no, 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 no. So you say something to a reporter and you say, tell me what you just heard me say. And if they've gotten something wrong, you have a chance to correct it. And if they're a good reporter, they're going to want an accurate story and they're going to want that correction. I'll tell you the truth. I got a ton of examples where I'm listening to someone and realize that I've got the story completely wrong. I decided to share a piece of an interview that I did with Renee Gurneau, who's here tonight. It's an example of me, well, being kind of dumb. Um, and this was a number of years ago, and I was like bopping around asking people about racism. So that's what's happening in this clip. And Renee took a minute and made a decision um, in this piece. So I'm just going to play this for you, and we'll talk about it. Talking with people for this story, I often asked American Indians about any personal experiences that they have had with racism. I heard about things that happened in schools, in stores, on streets. And then I asked Rene Gurneau, did you have experiences of racism in Bemidji as a young person? <laughs> what? <laughs> it was loud and clear for me too. And I'll go on and, and play you, but in this moment right here where I paused it, she paused. And in my mind, I was looking at her and I was thinking, she's deciding right now if she's going to tell me something or not. So let's hear the rest of what she decides to, to educate me. Some people think that racism is a personally bad attitude. It's not. What it is is uh, pervasive and it's institutionalized and it's part of every aspect of American life. And she goes on. But, I mean, that was a choice where she's educating a non-native reporter who was asking a stupid question, quite frankly. And so that's going to happen, you know? And it's your choice. I think what comes out of tonight is that you have options and there are safe spaces you might be able to create for yourself in the media where you can share something. But Simone doesn't want the women here to shy away from any reporters, whether they feel safe or not. So there are times where I am interviewed by someone that I have a relationship with, and I can, I can let things flow more, and I can trust her. But there are times where I'm being interviewed from a source that I, I don't trust as much. And when I am interviewed by that source, I edit myself a lot more. I think about my sentences, I say just what I want to say, I just bottom line it. Like, I don't give them anything that they can misconstrue. I think that just because you don't have a good relationship with someone doesn't mean that you shouldn't be getting your voices out. It just means that sometimes you have to be really strategic about what you say. But it's important that we get our voices out there, even if we don't have a good relationship with that reporter. There was so much more we wanted to do this evening. We wanted to do mock interviews and practice some scenarios of talking with the press, but we didn't get to it. I mean, I guess first you have to know what you're getting into, right? I'm hoping for a part two where we get to do all that other stuff. 
So this was the end. Folks were about to get up out of their chairs. Handouts were going around. But then somebody asked me a question. I have a question for you. What is the hardest part of your job actually interviewing indigenous people? It's hard to hear me here, but what I said was, the hardest part is realizing how white I am. That's awesome. No, that's great. You know, because Everyone stopped what they were doing. They all kind of turned to look at me. You know, privilege does not know how to look at itself in, with any kind of critical lens. You know, so right on for saying that, because they don't have to. I don't have to. <laughs> but you know, after an hour and a half of talking with Native women about what they can do to be in the media, here's a question that gets at what reporters like me need to do to get Native women in the media. We need to recognize our whiteness and come to terms with the things we need to learn. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you everyone for coming. Yeah, you know oh. Thank you. Great, Melissa. Love the awareness. Recognizing your whiteness, there's nothing wrong with that, mm. right? And, and even I, and maybe Cole too, recognizing the pervasiveness of the mainstream culture being the foundation of reporting. Mm. And even if you're Native, you can still be influenced by that. Dual citizenship. <laughs> exactly. So thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, thanks for listening. And that's why I love this episode, because we're kind of looking at ourselves, looking at how we report and cover stories at, at the same time. All right, so again, you are listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. And this is the fifth episode and the final episode of our first season. I'm your host, Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. So next up, we're hearing from two prominent Native leaders. They're both media makers in front and behind the microphone. And we're hearing how they found their voice to tell their story and fight for their community. All right. Yeah. Who do we got? Yeah, first up we have Dr. Kate Bean, who people may know recently as being the organizer behind reclaiming the Dakota name Bede Makaska for the lake briefly known as Lake Calhoun. She's a scholar and historian. She works at the Minnesota Historical Society and teaches as well. Most recently she released a documentary, Ohiesa, Soul of an Indian. And I've it, heard of that. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> now, I didn't know that was her. Yeah, and that the documentary, it follows her on a journey, which is more than a decade long. To examine the life and historical significance of a relative, Charles Eastman, who people may know as a celebrated Dakota writer and physician. You can hear more about it on Minnesota Native News. I'll give it a little plug there. Um, so uh, Kate Bean told me about when she received her Dakota name, it, it actually helped give her her ability to tell her story. Well, my Dakota name is Ahadipiwing, a great friend and mentor and relative of mine who is from Sioux Valley, Canada, um, he gave me that name. Uh, Brings Them Home Woman is really, uh, I think that, that he knew the type of work that I do as a historian. Um, I didn't receive that name until I was older and had sort of started on this path towards uh, work and elevating the voices of our relatives. It's really special to have a name that has, you know, like the specific meaning for you in yeah. something. So. Yeah, that's great to hear. Do you ever think about your Ojibwe name? See, that's a Sagaja one. Yeah, I every once in a while I think of my Ojibwe name, Windigukwe, which is a giant woman, (laughs) and I often wonder what it means. Mm. You know, I mean, these names were given to us when we were pretty little. Yeah. But sometimes I try to think about you know what's the significance behind that name. Yeah. What would What do you think? It changes <laughs> from year to year. <laughs> Sometimes I think, you know, because Windigo is the winter cannibal monster as well. Mm. Sometimes I think about not being satisfied. Mm. You know, sometimes I'm all, I feel like I'm frantically trying to, you know, um, do more and find myself not being satisfied. So sometimes I find myself um, relating to that part of my name. But really, it's supposed to be giant giant woman Mm. (laughs) and you know there are stories um behind uh the giants and i don't know i just kind of think of you know their personalities 
of being like welcoming a welcoming people and maybe maybe i'm a welcoming person i don't know i try to think about it sometimes yeah dad says that uh my uh, native name is zagajawan which he explained as like the opening of a river into like and you know a bigger body of water and i mean you can interpret that in many different ways i suppose but maybe it's just like constantly just uh, being creative and like just and having an outlet and I don't know, just expressing yourself. That's like my own basic understanding of the name. And I'm not sure if it, you know, guided my life or anything, but it's definitely something I think about at times. So Kate Bean said, uh, said her name gave her guidance and, and she said she took it really literally, especially for a Dakota woman living in exile in Flandreau, South Dakota, away from where her ancestors were truly from. We had this feeling of disconnection. Our family was from Flandreau. My father was born and raised there. My grandmother lived there. My my family lived there. Uh, and we would go visit. And But there was still something that was missing. I always felt like there was this deep history because our family helped homestead and settle that community. But I knew that that's not where we were from. And so it was kind of confusing. So she says she and her sister really found their voice to tell their story and, you know, fight for their community by returning to Minnesota and learning their language, their Dakota language. Yeah, it seems like that's a pretty consistent um, truth for a lot of the people that we interview Yeah, is, you know, going back to culture and then being able to use or being able to find their voice Yeah, definitely um, to be able to help the community. So, yeah, right. let's listen. Sure. My twin sister and I, neither one of us graduated from high school. And it wasn't until years later, after I had traveled throughout the whole country, lived all over the country doing various jobs, um, that I realized that really what I was looking for was home. And it was when our family moved here and we went to Bademankaska and I finally felt a connection, a physical connection to the landscape that I'd never had before. and my sister and I went on to become language educators. And then we went on to, uh, to higher education and she became a lawyer and I received my doctorate degree. And when we talk about, you know, how is it that we became successful? What drove us to go from two young punks <laughs> who dropped out of school to being successful professionals? It really, um, we really attributed that journey to our language and to becoming confident in who we are as Dakota women. Um, and for us, really, that path that we had in, in um, relearning our language and re-maintaining re that access to that history and to who we are was incredibly important. I always tell people that, you know, I used to have a lot of anxiety, I couldn't speak in front of people, and it wasn't until I could give my greeting in Dakota and it wasn't until I could speak Dakota that I could finally speak English. It gave us that confidence. Yeah, I found that very powerful that she said she couldn't speak in front of people until she learned, you know, her Dakota language. Yeah, and then, only then, could she finally speak English. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it, yeah, that confidence that comes with getting into your your heritage and and having that deep connection with it. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. So, uh, given Kate Bean's experience, I wanted to share her thoughts on how the news media can do better by Indigenous people and covering their stories and issues. The media needs to reach out to Native people and needs to reserve space for Native people to tell our own stories and give our own perspectives. A lot of the time, um, I feel like if a news story breaks and it has to do with Dakota people, Dakota history, or um, anything with our community, there's this assumption that we won't speak up or there's this assumption that there's not anyone to talk to. And the fact is we have a really beautiful community of educated, bright people that can speak up for ourselves. In the past, there have been a lot of people who spoke up for us. There were a lot of people who wrote books about us. There were a lot of people that did things about us. And that time has come to an end. You know, we can tell our own story. We can speak up for ourselves. We can tell our own interpretations of history. And we can look at the same documentation that some of these white scholars 
have looked at and interpret a very different story. Snaps to that. <laughs> I can snap. <laughs> like, is that a new thing now? Is it? No. <laughs> Snaps to that. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of educated and bright people and also very culturally grounded people and people just with their own stories that deserve to be told. And I love that this, the time of people telling our story, you know, from the outside has come to an end. Like now's our time. I'm sure they'll, they'll still try. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm really happy we got Brings Him Home Woman or Kate Bean uh, doing all that awesome work. See tomorrow, this my last word and testament First of all, I say me quetch for the best of it Creator gave me song and my fam gave the rest of it I hope I did you proud and gave my boys the elements That they need to succeed and did Oh, me quetch mm-hmm. Who are we listening to, Cole? Yeah, this is actually Wab Canoe, our next voice Oh, Wab Canoe, you mentioned he's currently the leader of the New Democratic Party in Manitoba, Canada? Yeah, I know. It's, it's awesome. Oh, it's, yeah. It's great. Uh, I recently had a chance to talk to him over Google Voice, and his story is so multi-layered, it's really tough to present it all here. He's been an activist, a musician, as you can tell, mm-hmm. journalist, author of a memoir, and a children's book, and now a politician in Canada. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what a resume. <laughs> it's great. I've uh, brought forward the carefully documented and considered complaints of nurses and patients of the chaos that is being uh, ushered into healthcare in Manitoba. And what is this premier's response? Quote, I don't really care. End quote, Madam Speaker. It is certainly a dereliction of duty on the part of this premier to be so dismissive of the complaints of the nurses at Seven Oaks, of the nurses at St. Boniface, of the patients who have just had their primary care at the Family Medical Center canceled. However, I would like to assure the people of Manitoba that there is one leader who's willing to stand up for health care, and there is one party willing to stand up for health care, and that is the NDP, Madam Speaker. With that in mind, with that in mind... That's Bob Canoe fighting for quality health care in 2019. But let's start from the beginning. All right. As an Ojibwe child of the Onigaming First Nation in northwestern Ontario, Wab Canoe had a vision that would guide his life's journey. When I was a, a little boy, I guess I used to wake up, uh, you know, like most kids probably call for my mom. But uh, one night, I guess, uh, as my parents tell me, they uh, were kind of surprised that I kind of called out for my dad in the middle of the night. And the reason was that I had um, a dream and a vision about uh, becoming a pipe carrier. And uh, so I guess uh, after going back to sleep and um, not too long after that, my uh, parents brought me to go see this uh, well-respected elder in our area uh, around Lake of the Woods. His name was Quick Quick Ebenes. His English name was Bill Skeed. And um asked him, you know, after offering tobacco and smoking the pipe with him to uh, sort of interpret, uh, asked him to uh, interpret the uh, the dream. And uh, so he did. And he said, you know, basically, uh, this boy should uh, get a pipe. So come back in uh, one moon's time, you know, 28 days, and we'll do the pipe pipe giving ceremony. So I did, and this is uh, this is before I was school age. So, so I was like, I don't know, three or four years old, something like that, and um, became a pipe carrier at that age. And so that kind of put me on a path of uh, spending a lot of time with some elders in our area of Northwestern Ontario, Treaty 3, Lake of the Woods area, and uh, even a bit in northern Minnesota, too. Like, I did go to uh, Panema, Abashing, in, um, on the Red Lake Reservation a few times when I was uh, a teenager and uh, getting into the culture and all that. Yeah. So the pipe carrier, I found that so fascinating. In addition to being an important fixture in ceremonies, a pipe carrier ensures that people are well and use whatever gifts they have to help those around them. And here we are back at using gifts, right? Mm. Which is kind of the point of the show. And, you know, it seems to be this reoccurring theme that just keeps coming back. And so four years old is a pipe carrier. Yeah. Wow. That's really um, 
amazing. <laughs> yeah, and like, uh, like many youth, Wob says he went through a rebellious phase, especially at the University of Manitoba. I know I had my own phase in college. But he says he turned it around and he got into journalism, and it was kind of by accident. It happened after the Winnipeg Free Press published a letter to the editor, which he had written about Team Canada Hockey, and it got some interest from a local CBC radio producer. So they looked me up in the phone book, called me up, and just said, you know, would you like to turn what you wrote in the paper into something for the radio? So I said, sure. And then I came in, and I basically just um, worked my way up. Like I sat in on a pitch meeting. I pitched a bunch of ideas, some of which they were interested in. And then that turned into what I would call an internship uh, for a few weeks. And then that turned into, like, the most entry-level kind of assistant producer type of job on a contract basis. And then I worked my way up. On the radio side, from you know, co- like contract uh, assistant producer to producer to host to uh, you know so on, and then moved over to TV, and then um, basically repeated the process on the TV side, moving from like a very entry level to um, becoming a more experienced reporter, and then eventually a, a host on television. Wow, mm. good for him! Yeah, and it all started with just you know sending a letter, uh, but just about hockey. Right. <laughs> to one of the newspapers. Canada. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it shows, you, it shows that you can, you can find a career in many different ways. But, yeah, while working for CBC, Wob covered many subjects, both concerning the Native community and not. He said one of the most profound experiences as a journalist was covering residential schools, which have a very similar history to the United States boarding schools when it comes to the Native community. I, I do think we changed the way stories were covered. And that's such a significant thing, uh, to actually affect how stories are covered in a more accurate way. Wobb says that unlike the U.S. government, Canada was actually willing to address its tragic history with its residential schools. There was a compensation and settlement agreement, and then eventually there was a truth commission, a truth and reconciliation commission, to document the experiences of people who were taken from their families or who were abused in residential schools. When Wobb wrote about the commission for the CBC, he used a word that turned out to be controversial. That word was survivors. My dad, when he was in a residential school, he shared a bunk bed with this uh, young man named uh, Migons, was his Ojibwe name. Louis was his English name. And uh, Migons died in the residential school. So if Migons died in the residential school, then therefore my father, what? He survived. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So he was a survivor. And... Years later, when the Truth Commission would conclude and deliver its final report, they found that thousands and thousands of children, First Nations children, Indigenous children, died in residential schools across the country. So it was not an uncommon experience for a child to die. And therefore, those who didn't perish are rightly, technically, accurately called survivors. But the CBC had a problem with the word survivors. Wob actually threatened to resign, but he didn't have to. And long story short, the um, the organization eventually reversed that policy, and they said, "Well, we are uh, sending out a new all staff memo to all ten thousand reporters and employees across the country. Yet you can use the term survivor in your coverage of residential schools." And I think that was an important victory. He calls that a victory for journalism, because the role of a journalist is to tell the truth and report accurately. This was a a process to push it towards a more accurate representation and a more honest telling of this this important story. Wow, the term survivor is very significant, and I'm glad that that this was brought up. Mm -hmm. You know, and the, the words we choose to use and how carefully we choose our words... Um, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that was settled in the way it was. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I wanted to hear his thoughts on how natives are covered in the media, specifically the social media. The job that I do, uh, I, I work a lot in the social media world. And he actually had some very interesting thoughts on the power of social media and how it unites people, but it also amplifies division. He talked about the Idle No More movement in Canada, which, uh, the main mission was to protect water, air, land and all creation for future generations. Like, I don't know more, it was this massive protest movement in Canada that was made possible because of Twitter. And this was like around, you know, 
2012, 2013, end of 2012, beginning of 2013, and this like massive like indigenous-led protest movement just took over the national media attention, and it was organized predominantly through Twitter, and then amplified through Facebook, and that was very positive, uh, I would say, because it put a lot of the challenges that indigenous people were facing onto the national attention. Yeah, but that that same tool that united First Nations people and amplified their concerns is also being used to divide people and deny real history of First Nations people. But now here we are a few few years later, and stuff that I would have thought was impossible, like people denying residential schools or saying residential schools weren't harmful, or people you know questioning you know the veracity of stuff in our history that was damaging to Indigenous people, or trying to you know promulgate revisionist history through social media is a reality right so i think that that's one of the things we gotta we gotta be aware of like on the one hand it's really uh empowering when people can share their story directly from their community you know you go straight from the res you can go straight from the hood you can go straight from like you know your town wherever you live straight from the suburbs and tell your story and your reality but on the same, uh, at the same time, you have to understand that these are like massive companies that are basically trying to addict you to your smartphone. And the way they do it is by picking the most engaging content and serving it up to the audience that's going to get the most um, um, either excited or outraged by it. And the harm is amplified when media organizations follow social media trends when choosing stories. I mean, they're going to choose what's, you know, the hottest topic, the most divisive topic. Right? God. I mean, For that, those that, clicks, I right? Mean, that, that comes into play. I mean, it's not, it's not everything that's being chosen. I mean, but it's certainly, if there's a hot social media topic, it, the news is going to pick up on that. Right. So, okay. Wob sounds like he was doing an awesome job in journalism, mm-hmm. right? Like, he's, yeah. he's doing it. Um, he's a host, you know, he's a journalist. Right? Yeah. So, why did he get into politics? He says uh, he got into politics because after fighting for justice from the outside as an activist and covering issues as a journalist, he wanted to give his voice inside the actual system. But if we go back to thinking about the pipe and uh, being a pipe carrier, like the role there is not about you. The role is about helping other people around you. So it's that kind of role. Where the motivation about like, uh, you know, like aiming high for me, that just translates to work ethic. So if I want to advance my career to the fullest, if I want to um, put myself into a position to be able to help the most people as possible, then I just have to work really hard to get there. And I have to hold you know, myself to a high standard and, you know, while being understanding of what the constraints of reality are, also holding, you know, the people that I work with to a high standard too. High standards in politics. <laughs> it's, it's got to be tough. Like yeah. he said, he said, uh, like if you think uh, the media is toxic, um, you got to check out politics. Yeah, politics is tricky for me. I have very strong beliefs, and it's hard to think, of, even imagine myself reporting on politics. <laughs> just... And I like that last quote uh, from Wab because it really wraps up what this entire series is about. And it's sharing your gifts, holding yourself to a high standard, and actually holding other people to a high standard and helping your community. Yeah, helping other people around you. Yeah. And, you know, I, I hope we've helped somebody mm-hmm. through these episodes. Yeah. I know it's helped me. <laughs> Even just talking with you cole mm-hmm. here um in the studio um what an amazing what a cool opportunity for us as siblings to get to host a show like this yeah i think i can do more of this <laughs> and then hear all these conversations and voices of our members of the community that we are a part of yeah hearing voices that that you kind of relate with and, and as far as you know the native side and how it helps us with our you know own storytelling i know we we had some meetings about this you know us and the producers and 
you know, what should we do? But, you know, we decided to go talk to the community first. So I really hope, I really hope we were able to honor that. And, you know, if we didn't get it all this time, um, maybe next season too. So there's a lot more to cover. Yeah, sure. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it's the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of work to do and I look forward to doing it. Likewise. And now, bang, oh my bang, goodness. Bang, so, yeah, this is the, the end. <sighs> it's the end of Native Lights. It's the when, end of the beginning. <laughs> there you <Sorry>. go. <laughs> I had to put it in there. <laughs> yeah, it's the end of the first season of Native Lights. Where, where indigenous, indigenous voices, voices shine. shine. And we want to very graciously thank Dr. Kate Bean. And Wab Canoe. And Simone Senegals and all the people that attended the We Speak for Ourselves event in Bemidji. And we also want to thank our engineer, Justice Sanchez, our project manager, Aaron Warhol, producers, Lori Stern and Melissa Townsend. Cole and I created the music for this episode. And lastly, we want to thank you, the listeners, and please, uh, you know, get a hold of us and uh, let us know how you felt about the series. I'm your host, Leah Lamb. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo. Gigawabamin and goodbye. Native Lights Podcast, where Indigenous voices shine, is a production of Minnesota Native News and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. Native Lights Podcast is made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and the citizens of Minnesota.